Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you had a great holiday season and managed to make realistic goals for yourself in the new year. Maybe one of your resolutions was to learn more about the context of the Bible. If so, we would be delighted to have you join us at Israel Bible Center, where you have a wide variety of courses and roundtable talks to enhance your biblical studies. In the last podcast we did, way back last year, was about the War Scroll. It is among the body of literature we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it is not a document that is included in the Jewish or Christian canons. This document talks about the Sons of Light going into an epic battle with the Sons of Darkness. This is a text that refuses to be pigeonholed in any one type of genre. If you missed that introduction to the War Scroll, you may want to hit pause on this episode and go back and listen to the introduction. Today, we sit with Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, Dr. Tupa Guerra, and Dr. Nicholas Shazer to continue the conversation about the war scroll. And we will start with a curious character in the scroll that was mentioned last time, and the character's name is Belial, who is somehow this personification of evil or worthlessness. This is not the only place where Belial is mentioned, but it gives us a glimpse into what people in the Second Temple period thought about this particular character. Let's start with Dr. Guerra, who is an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls and is going to read a portion from the War Scroll and then compare it to what we have seen in some biblical manuscripts. Lean in and enjoy this wonderful and slightly weird conversation. You yourself made Belial for the pit, an angel of malevolence. His dominion is in darkness, and his counsel is to condemn and convict. All the spirits of his lot, the angels of destruction, walk in accord with the rule of darkness, for it is your only desire. So. I think this sets Belial very well, which not many of the scrolls do, although Belial is mentioned in many, many places, not only in the scrolls, but also in the in the what we call now Bible. And it's amazing because it says, well, first of all, that God made Belial for the pit. Uh, it's an angel of malevolence, and he has dominion over darkness, and he has spirits. He has other angels of destruction and of evil that are with him. But I would like to remind us, when we first saw about the sons of the children of Belial, the children of darkness, we saw that it was not only angels and supernatural beings that were part of Belial's army. The sons of darkness are also humans. 
In the last episode, Dr. Guerra pointed out how we in modern day tend to imagine evil figures as being human-like, with red skin and horns and tails and wings. But in the War Scroll, the description is not really all that important. What is important is the fact that he is the adversary, and among his troops are those who violate the covenant. So the troops of worthlessness are not only formed by enemies, but also those people who violate the covenant, the people who do not follow the laws of God. And I think it's fascinating to see how evil is not only something for uh, only supernatural beings can be evil. Evil can permeate all aspects and can also be part of humans. And those will also fight with Belial. But Belial was made for the pit. So Belial is not some, it's not a being that will stay for forever. He is dangerous. He will attack, but he will not stay forever. And I think it's, fascinating to see how the scroll uh, explains to the reader how evil is portrayed and how is this um, commander of the evil forces, who is he and who he is commanding and how the rule of darkness is acting and how people who follow him desire to be in darkness. They don't desire the light. If we were going to find a comparison of what Tupa was talking about with the biblical text, is there anything that comes immediately to mind? I thought of the Apocalypse of John or the book of Revelation, especially the part in Revelation 20 that says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain upon his arm. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Israel Bible Center has a whole course on Revelation, so I recommend if you want to dive into that subject, you enroll in that course. But it is interesting to notice the parallels between biblical text and Dead Sea Scrolls, and especially what we're seeing in the War Scroll and how it talks about the enemies of the community of light. It seems to me that it's probably talking about, ultimately God has appointed uh, this Belial figure to, to the abyss or to the pit, which is exactly what we see here in Revelation, that there's uh, a battle, uh, a heavenly war. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 12 with this entity that's called the dragon or the serpent or the devil or Satan in Revelation. So there's another parallel here too. And it seems that we can draw an analogy between the Belial figure of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the figure that's called the devil or Satan in Revelation. Tupa already mentioned that Belial is sometimes associated with Satan, so I think we're on good comparative ground here to to say that there's a parallel between these two, or we can even understand the figure is the same. When I just asked you about comparisons with biblical texts, I wonder if any of you did not think of Revelation but of Pauline material. Dr. Gruber draws our attention to 1 Thessalonians 5, which starts with, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then Paul goes on to say, 
But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. What does Dr. Gruber say of this text and the war scroll? Light and darkness, day and night, are not being used um, exactly literally, is what we would say, but they're being used to represent something greater, and it's apparently a very common way of doing so at this time in the first century. But since we belong to the day, which is to say the light side of things, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Messiah. So again, it's a hope of salvation, which is interesting. It kind of relates to that theme we talked about where, you know, you have to be patient and wait because there's a lot of evil and it's really threatening um, to the good side. It doesn't just happen immediately. In fact, if you think of most of the stories from the Hebrew Bible as well, when there's a threat or or oppression or, or some evil thing going on, usually God doesn't just snap his fingers and take care of it right away. It's usually a pretty long process and, and there's a lot of endurance involved in waiting, hoping for that salvation that comes ultimately. The idea of battle comes back with the breastplate and helmet and this all this idea that there is a fight that here it's not necessarily, uh, even in the war scroll, it's not necessarily a fight with an army and bullets, but there is a fight that everyone may do an internal fight or also an external fight against evil. And evil is dangerous and is around, but there is hope for salvation. So we get the military language, which, which Tipa mentioned, which is so important here because we've got a military war in the, in the war scroll. And it's interesting that we have more military language cropping up here. Now, it's, it's kind of recontextualized. Uh, Paul's not talking about a literal war exactly here. Rather, it's, you know, the breastplate or the, you know, armor piece of faith and love or a helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. But what I would say, actually, is that oftentimes Christians might be tempted to take this language and look at the comparison and say, okay, so the Dead Sea Scroll writers were militaristic. You know, Jews in the Second Temple period were looking for some sort of military savior or something, or they were like overly violent. Whereas we get Paul's language and Paul metaphorizes it and makes it about love and hope because Jesus is not militaristic and uh, and rough, but rather inter- interested in in peace and love and singing kumbaya. So it's a it's a bit of an unfair uh, categorization because uh, the Dead Sea Scroll writers are going to talk about faith and love and hope of salvation too in different places, and then secondarily, Paul knows that that. God's people are not destined for wrath. What Paul's thinking of there is not a metaphor. Paul is thinking of a day, the day of the Lord, in which there's actual physical, for lack of a better term, militaristic carnage that's going to happen on earth. So both texts have elements of this kind of metaphorization, but underlying both texts is real anticipation of a day of divine battle, a, a day of war. So both are similar in that regard. And of course, Paul's language here goes back to like Israel's prophets. For example, you know, there's classically, Jeremiah says, you know, you're telling the people, shalom, shalom, va'en shalom, peace, peace, 
but there is no peace. You know, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of wrath. It's going to be a day you don't want to see, and it's going to happen here on earth. So Paul is drawing on all of that imagery. So it's just to say, to make a, a one-to-one comparative and say, oh, the New Testament is a language of love, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are a language of, of military campaign, that's uh, just not a good way to dichotomize these two texts. I want to switch gears just a little bit because there's this really interesting fragment, and it may or may not belong to the war scroll, but it mentions the Messiah and it says something along the lines of, and the prophet Isaiah said, and they shall cut the most massive of the forest with iron, and Lebanon with its magnificence will fall. A shoot will emerge from the stump of Jesse, the bud of David, and they will go into battle. And then there's a little bit of a broken section, and then it continues. And the prince of the congregation will kill him or them, or be killed by him or them, and the high priest will command the slain of the Katim. So what do we do with this, Dr. Gruber? So a lot of this is debated. The the reconstruction is debated. And so there's argument between scholars about whether this is talking about a pierced Messiah, like the suffering servant who's killed, or a piercing Messiah, the kingly Messiah who kills his enemies. It's fascinating how the Messiah is here. And again, because it's fragmentary, because it's a difficult reading, it's not clear if the prince of the congregation, the Messiah, will be the suffering one or the fighting one, the one who, who is killing or the one who is, is being killed. But it's clear that it's in the same sense, in the same uh, word, shall we say, or the same moment of this battle and this end of times. Dr. Shazer, can I ask you what's going on here with the references to the Hebrew Bible, to the Tanakh? Yeah, sure. So if you'll notice, the Isaiah 1034 is the first text that is uh, cited. And so they're just drawing on, well, they're, it's kind of like their own version of, of that verse. And then also the, the next verse, the following verse, um, which is Isaiah 11.1, 1, is also in here. The shoot emerging from the stump of Jesse, that's, that's Isaiah 11.1. 1, and it goes on to talk about this branch, which in, which in the Hebrew of um, Isaiah is, is netzer. That's the word for branch. And this is a clear kind of symbolic reference to some sort of coming savior figure or messianic figure, because at the end of the of this little passage in the beginning of Isaiah 11, it says of this netzer, this branch, that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So in, th- in that case, this scroll might be talking about the Messiah figure killing the wicked, which is why there's debate around, um, you know, how this text should be read. But at the same time, in Isaiah, it's like metaphorical. Kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. So it's like teaching righteousness in order to somehow shun the wicked or something like that. So it's a little bit unclear. Uh, And on the other hand, um, you know, Israel Canola is quite right that there are flutterings of a kind of a, a pierced or a wounded messianic figure we already get in Second Temple literature in the prophets. Shia, you talked about Isaiah 53 and uh, the, the, the death of the so-called suffering servant who in later Judaism was understood messianically, depending on which text you're reading. 
On the other hand, you've got something like Zechariah 12.10, where God says, um, that they will look to me whom they have pierced. And then it goes on to say, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a firstborn son. Uh, so we have this idea of like, you know, some sort of figure coming that's either killing the wicked or being killed, which is why we get the notion of the Messiah Ben David, the Messiah son of David, and then the, the killed and suffering Messiah of Joseph, according to the Talmud. I should note that the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves talk about two messianic figures. This phrase is Mashihe Aharon Yisrael, the Messiah's plural of Aaron and Israel, one being a priest like Aaron who, who offers sacrifices or does some sort of sacrificial act, and then one like a king, like David, who does military stuff. So there's a lot of different kind of thorny biblical and Second Temple ideas to sift through here, which is what makes this passage so difficult to interpret, but also so rich uh, to learn and to study. Again, I, I really can't stress enough how dependent the War Scroll and other Dead Sea Scroll material is on the Bible. Somebody didn't roll out of bed one day and say, I'm going to write this war scroll, and whatever pops into my head, I'm just going to write down. This stuff is being literally built on the biblical texts, the biblical prayers like the Psalms, or even the biblical narrative. We just looked at the last slide that Tupa gave us, which is really interesting because priests, as Shia noted, uh, they do a lot of militaristic stuff for the armies in, in the Tanakh, I mean, I think first of like Joshua and the and the fall of Jericho, where priests are the ones signaling with trumpets, just like they are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, there's a reason why the Dead Sea Scroll writers are saying that here's how this end time war is going to happen. It's going to look almost exactly like the war at Jericho, because things go in a in a pattern. It's what scholars call narrative patterning. And the idea is that Jewish ancient Jewish people would have thought that everything kind of goes in a spiral direction, like. Time moves forward, but it does so in a way that recapitulates itself, that, that kind of redoes history. This is how the New Testament writers write. This is how the Dead Sea Scroll writers write. And I think that the king of glory language here and this hero of war, hero of battle, is clearly drawing on the Psalms, which itself is drawing on things like Exodus 15, where God is talked about as a, as a, a, a god of war uh, after breaking the Israelites out of Egypt. So all of this stuff is just one big narrative pattern, and that's why we get the uh, descriptions of the war that we do in the scrolls. Exactly. Yeah, I was also thinking of that song of the sea, Ish Milchama, a man of war. God yeah. is a man of war, a warrior, right. a champion. interesting to me as we go through this war scroll and we're looking at how the authors of the scroll are pulling from very similar ideas that later authors are going to pull from. And we can see how they, like the gospel and New Testament writers, were pulling from older biblical material. So we're starting to build this network of context of ideas that they're all pulling from. I'd like to end with a similar context kind of idea, how is Isaiah now going to be used by the gospel writers? The Dead Sea Scrolls, that material obviously to many of us is not as familiar. Um, it's certainly not even as familiar to me as it is to Tupa, for example. Okay, so like 
it, it's a it's a it can be a kind of a confusing and murky land to traverse. And sometimes I feel that way about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so what I think is always helpful is to anchor our discussion in stuff that might be more familiar to to readers. And I, I've kind of been doing this the entire time, drawing these parallels between the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But here I think it's important as a point of kind of Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, I, I brought up Isaiah 61, and very famously, Jesus in Luke's Gospel uh, cites from that very passage, okay? And so let me just read the first paragraph here. It says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was opened and given to Jesus. This is Jesus in a synagogue. And he unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it is written, quote, and here's Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it stops there. That's Jesus is done now with the Isaiah quotation. And it says he, you know, closes up the scroll and he sits sits back down. Then he says, and it says, and Jesus began to say to those in the synagogue, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as someone who works uh, closely in the New Testament, who also, also spends quite a bit of time teaching in churches, um, I've heard more than once that this passage uh, shows that Jesus is more interested in peace and God is more interested in vengeance in Isaiah. Notice how the Isaiah text ends. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Jesus citing all that. And then Jesus stops at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the rest of the of the sentence in Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance for our God. Okay. So what most, what a lot of Christian readers would interpret this as is, okay, so Luke or Jesus stops purposefully before the reference to the day of vengeance. Because Jesus is, you know, a Messiah of love and is not interested in vengeance and war and militarism. And so oftentimes when people read it like that, they can say, okay, well, Jesus is sort of overturning the violent or angry God of the Old Testament somehow and showing how God should really be. Um, this kind of rhetoric shows up all the time. It's really kind of poisonous to a Jewish Christian relations, but also a proper understanding of who Jesus thought God was. And and Jesus, the, the God whom Jesus follows is the same God who speaks in Isaiah 61, even that bit about the day of vengeance. And we know for a fact that Luke knows that because later on in the, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 21, Jesus actually refers to that day of vengeance language that we see in the rest of Isaiah 61. So Jesus says this, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and he's talking about the upcoming destruction of the second temple by the Romans, then you know that its desolation has come near. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. For there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. So Jesus is saying, yeah, today, the whole proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Today in the synagogue, that has been fulfilled in your hearing, that part of it. But at the towards the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says, no, 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 but all of Isaiah 61 is going to be fulfilled. There will be a day of vengeance, just like God says in Isaiah. So Jesus is not poo-pooing this day of vengeance language or saying that's less important. You know, let's 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 focus on, you know, peace and love and forget the the, you know, the I guess more violent sounding aspects. Jesus is saying all of that is important to me and if God says that that's what's going to happen in Isaiah 61, that's what's going to happen. It may not be fulfilled today in the synagogue in the 1st century, but it's going to be fulfilled because all of the scriptures have to be fulfilled. 
What a journey we have been on today. We went from the War Scroll to Revelation to Thessalonians to Luke. We learned about battles and restoration. What you heard today is a sneak peek at what is going to come out later this year as a course. So sign up for the email list so you don't miss when this course is released. If you like these kinds of conversations, join us at IBC, where you have access to many amazing courses that dig into details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good sounds. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.